0: On a cold December night, 47 disgraced warriors approached the palace of Lord Kira to avenge the death of their master. 300 years later, people still honored the efforts of these warriors and their devotion to the code of honor they lived by. But who were these warriors and why were they attacking Lord Kira?
1: I am Mr. Stewart. I'm Mr. Patane.
0: I'm Mr. Snyder, and this is To Answer Your Question, a podcast all about history.
2: Before we can talk about the story of the warriors that attacked the palace, we need to first understand the system that was established in Japan called feudalism. And feudalism, as you've learned in the past, uh, looked a certain way in, in certain places like Europe. But feudalism in Japan was very unique. Their social pyramid was a lot different than what you might be used to.
1: From what I understand, the emperor actually, even though at different times may have had some power, most of the time was kind of a figurehead, not necessarily totally involved in making all the decisions, but mostly just kind of someone that they would pay homage to, not necessarily someone that actually was like making the moment-to-moment decisions for the country.
0: Right, and I think that's kind of a big discrepancy between feudalism and medieval Europe that we talk about with the king being the head and having that power. And in Japan, you have this emperor who is essentially just a figurehead. I mean, can't really call shots to run the country, just is there to
2: be there.
1: So who's really calling the shots then? From what I understand, it was more of like a military state run by a, a man with the title of shogun. Um, kind of creating what they would call a shogunate, kind of like a military breakdown. Um, and they would divide the power throughout the country with people either that he trusted or people that had traditionally been in power. Um, so that he could send information and collect taxes and, and protect the country when needed. Yeah. So you have this military leader. Yeah. He's a military leader, the shogun. And so
2: Daimyo's reported then to the shogun. And the daimyo's got their power from the warriors. And those warriors were called samurai.
1: So Daimyo, what would you say? Is that like more of a regional boss? Or would you say like he what was he in charge of?
2: I think if you're if you're looking at feudalism the way that we've learned it from medieval Europe, the daimyos would be like the nobles. So yeah. the samurai would be serving the daimyo, and then the daimyo reported to the shogun. So the shogun would get his warriors from all the daimyo that reported to him.
1: Okay. So if you think of it like a pyramid, like a social pyramid, they're mm-hmm. in charge of kind of their region. And then the samurai would be in charge of the kind of their local area. And then the peasants reported to the samurai.
2: But that wasn't the end of the pyramid either. The peasants made up the majority of the population, which is what we've always talked about. It's always been the peasants and the farmers. In this case, it's what, 90%, I think? But mm-hmm. they're, not, they're not the lowest on the pyramid there's groups even below the peasants as far as the social classes go, which is kind of interesting because that's not normally what we're used to seeing.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's kind of where you see influence from China and Confucianism playing into feudal Japan.
1: I was always told it was because they didn't actually produce anything. They were just selling the work of other people, so they were not seen as having as much respect, even though they might actually have more money.
2: So these were like the artisans and the merchants.
1: Correct. Jobs that we
2: might consider to be more attractive than being a farmer, they're considered lower class in feudal Japan.
0: Yeah, but they still had more money than the peasants did. Let's not joke ourselves that the peasants were super rich in feudal Japan.
1: No, they were, yeah, they basically were given what they were allowed, and they had to, you know, respect and serve their samurai, from what I understand.
2: So speaking of the samurai, here's something that is pretty unique to Japanese culture, especially in the time of feudalism. If you're a samurai warrior, there's one thing that is of utmost importance to you and your name, and that's honor. And if you were to ever do anything to dishonor yourself, disgrace yourself or your family, there was really only one way out of it, and that was through a glorious death on the battlefield. So for a samurai, being honorable at all steps of life was the number one most important thing that he would follow.
1: Yeah, so, no, like, one of the things that I always remember is just how dedicated the samurai were to detail. They would get up and they would they would follow this code, but they would also practice everything to the nth degree. Like, if you were going to be a warrior, that's all you did was practice how to be a warrior. And they were very intentional. I mean, like, they had very, you know, skilled ways of making their swords. Supposedly, according to legend, they would fold the steel a thousand times which if you're a blacksmith, I can only imagine how long that would take to make one special sword. Or if you were going to do something, you did it in a way that like projected your energy in a, in a way. They they had mastered the dedication to just becoming experts at whatever they did. So you mentioned
2: the word code. What, what was this code officially called then?
1: The code of Bushido? This code was something that like would govern every aspect of their life um you kind of can compare it to like a concept of chivalry but much more intense like there was one of those things where like their whole goal in life was to bring honor to their family and honor to their uh, daimyo's and their samurai like so they're they're dedicated in following these these codes and practicing with just such a degree of perfection it's just amazing
0: Right. I mean, people say, like, the Bushido Code, there are really eight virtues that these Samurais have to follow. Um, You know, righteousness, courage, benevolence, and compassion, respect, honesty, honor, and then, of course, like, loyalty, loyalty to um those that you serve. Because the term Samurai actually means one who serves. So you're loyal to whoever you serve.
2: And so that loyalty, then, part of, a guess, the code would be that as a Samurai, you don't ever...
1: No, I mean, no. to surrender would be to bring, like, unbelievable disgrace to your family and to your uh, clan. So
2: this Code of bushido, what does it have to do with the story that, uh Ryan, you prefaced at the beginning? Well, the story of the 47 Ronin based back to the 1700s. And first of all, a Ronin is a samurai that does not have a daimyo. And so this question is now, how do these 47 samurai lose their daimyo? Well, in April of uh, 1701, these samurai, their, their daimyo, Lord Asano, is sent to Edo, which is the capital of Imperial Japan at the time. And he is to study and learn court etiquette under this other daimyo, whose name was Lord Kira. Kira Kira's not happy that he has to train this guy. Lord Asano wasn't happy that he had to learn from a fellow daimyo. Lord Asano, I guess, doesn't bring a gift, which was such a great affront that Lord Kira decides he's going to start calling Lord Asano names. Like a poor country bumpkin without manners. So they get into a silly name-calling contest. Asano, in the heat of the moment, gets so upset that Lord Kira is calling him names that he decides he's going to draw his dagger, and he ends up attacking Lord Kira, leaving a scar on Lord Kira's face. Now, this is the guy who's supposed to be training him. So kind of a bad situation there for a lot of reasons, but as as the Code of Bushido states if you bring dishonor on yourself, there's a problem. And he's in the capital palace, and you can't draw your weapon in the capital palace. So Lord Asano has dishonored himself, and there's only one way out, and that's ritual suicide. So that's how these 47 samurai lose their daimyo and become known as the 47 Ronin.
1: Wow. That would be a disgrace in our culture to be called a uh, poor country bumpkin without manners. I mean, that would be like a major slap in the face. So now these guys are leaderless. You have these Ronin kind of wandering Japan, and you're like, well, what are they going to do? Well, actually, there were a lot more than just the 47, but the 47 that gather together in secret and plan this revenge attack is its just kind of amazing. These guys kind of wander around Japan, and they work on it, and they're planning it. They go as far as to marry people um, that work for Lord Kira just so they can steal things like blueprints. They are being led by a man by the name of Oishi, okay? So Oishi is completely just disgraced and is wanting to bring honor back to his lord. So he's got this plan. And they go into whatever it takes. These guys spend time planning and you know training and gathering all the stuff that they're going to need to attack a castle that's heavily armed and heavily fortified when they don't have any of the stuff that they've had in previous. So they have to go back and find all this. Oishi divorces his own family, walks away just so he can protect them for what's coming because they know what they're getting ready to do is against the Code of Bushido, but they don't care because in the same way they're honoring the Code of Bushido by respecting their their leader. So they're going to break a law given to them by a shogun more so and then follow this Code of Bushido to basically invade an entire castle with only 47 men.
0: Yeah, and that invasion happens on the night of December 14th, 1702. These 47 meet up, one leaves, and this guy's leaving on horse to kind of carry out this story and make sure the story gets out there, that they are actually following the code in case something happens to the remaining 46. Now, these remaining 46, they scale the walls in secret, they take out Kira's guard, they get into his mansion, and they're searching for Lord Kira because they want to revenge this death of their master. Well, they find Lord Kira kind of hiding in this closet. And you might think, well, how did they know it was him? Well, if you remember that scar that Lord Asanio gave him when he first attacked, they notice the same scar on the face. So they get him and they carry out the plan. They are successful in avenging the death of their master. Well, these 46 Ronin, surprisingly, they all live. They suffer no casualties um but we can't say the same for Lord Kira and 16 of his guards. Now, it is against the law. You can't go around just killing whoever you want in Imperial Japan. So these 47 ronin were actually sentenced or 46, excuse me, 46 ronin were actually sentenced to ritual suicide themselves. Now, the one that left on horseback, he was allowed to remain alive.
1: Wow, that's some amazing dedication. I mean just To look at these guys just seek revenge and follow this code to their death, that's just some amazing dedication. You have to wonder, with that kind of dedication, whatever happened to the samurai?
0: Right. Like, obviously, we don't hear about samurai being around today in Japan. So, yeah, what did happen to all these people? And really, the code of Bushido as well. If you remember, feudal Japan is run by a military leader, a shogun. And over time, a shogun starts to lose control of Japan. And it's hard to keep a country intact if you don't really have the same power that you once had. And this helps feudal Japan collapse and the shogun's power collapse as well.
1: This is probably about the time that the United States, believe it or not, shows up with uh, Commodore Matthew Perry, and the story goes that he sails in with a few ships the first time, and he drops off a letter from our president saying, hey, we'd like to start trade. I'm sure it said a lot more than that, but basically saying, guys, you need to open your door because Japan is isolated to the outside world. Like, they're, they're what they would consider themselves a landlocked country. Like, even though they're an island, they're just not doing business. And Commodore Matthew Perry sails in to represent the United States to bring an end to this isolation period.
2: I can only imagine how this looks, though. I mean, you've got Japan that's been isolated and you have these American warships powered by steam sailing into their harbors. Uh it's gotta be pretty intimidating. I mean, what how how is Japan gonna say no? How are they gonna say, We refuse, you know, to, to cooperate, we refuse to trade? And actually th- didn't he give them this one was his first trip. This one was no, he went time. twice. He went yeah, twice. So, but, so he hands them a letter, and then he I think he gives them, what, a year to make it uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good amount of time. I mean, travel back then wasn't super quick, so he didn't just leave and get back the next day. But he did bring with them, and this was part of the thing, is when he showed up in Japan, it wasn't like purely like, hey, you need to trade with us. It was like, look what you're missing out on. He brings out to them, like, I remember this from when I was in class. They brought out to him, like, a train and said, look, this is what the rest of the world is using right now, this locomotive train. They, like, set it up and, like, make it go. They unload telegraphs so they can be, like, you know, sending messages back and forth. I mean, like, look, the rest of the world is starting to use telegraphs. You guys, like, the world is developing. You're missing out. And they also showed them things like books, which was, like, the Internet of the old days. And so they were able to, like, show books of, like, these are the animals that you guys don't get to see around the rest of the world. Like, because Japan has been so isolated that they've missed out on a lot of what's going on in the rest of the world. And so not only is he there to force them open, but he's also saying, like, look what you guys are missing out on. So it's kind of a double whammy. Yeah, he's doing it for his selfish reasons. But at the same time, he's also saying, look, guys, look, this is what's out there for you if you open the doors he's he's trying to say to him like, look, you're missing out on this. But what he's getting out of it is the fact that they're opening up training ports so that they can have markets to sell their merchandise. If U.S. ships get into trouble, it's like an agreement that they can pull into their harbor and um, these sailors will do help that they need. And it's just a way for them to refuel for their steamship. So it's kind of like I mean, the United States is definitely getting some good things out of this forced opening of Japan.
0: Yeah, I think the United States does have those other motives other than, hey, look at all you're missing out on Japan. I mean, the United States really wanted to benefit from what they could have um, in Japan with those trading ports.
2: Oh, by the way, we have these weapons that just in case you refuse, like these tall rifles. And I know that the ships were fixed with these cannons that actually had, exploding shells, which ships didn't have those until this time. So not only can a ship fire a cannon shot, but when that cannon hits something, it's going to explode. So Japan I think is kind of put in a position where how, how can they refuse? It's overwhelming the force that would be against them.
0: I don't know if yeah, they really had people. a had a choice in the matter. It was, you will do this but look at all the good things that you can have once you open up your borders.
1: So I think this kind of moves into Japan, like, opening their doors. And then they truly do modernize pretty unbelievably quickly because, as you guys are going to find out, they they industrialize within the next 50 years, basically.
2: I mean, and,
0: and this they, essentially ends feudal Japan.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with a modern industrialized Japan, and with gunpowder
1: and rifles and weapons, what will now do the samurai hatching. the sa- The samurai... Kind of disappear, um, and I don't think it's as smooth as you might think, but the samurai step back and the emperor takes a much more important role in the way Japan is run. Not necessarily just a person of image or a figurehead, but much more influential in politics. As
2: a result of Japan's rapid industrialization and modernization in the late 1800s, she's then set upon a much different path one that is going to ultimately lead to a more militaristic and aggressive future, and that's going to include direct conflicts with the United States. And this is going to be a conflict which, in its course, is going to incorporate that concept of the Code of Bushido.
1: I'm Mr. Stewart.
2: I'm Mr. Patane.
1: And
0: I'm Mr. Snyder. And that's what you get for asking the question.